0: Welcome to the B'nai International Podcast. I'm CEO Dan Mary Ashen. Thank you for tuning in today. I'm joined today by Jane Levy, a sports writer and the award-winning New York Times best-selling author of biographies of baseball legends Mickey Mantle and Sandy Koufax. Those books are titled The Last Boy, Mickey Mantle and the End of America's Childhood and Sandy Koufax, A Lefty's Legacy. Jane also wrote the comic novel Squeeze Play, described by Entertainment Weekly as the best novel ever written about baseball. Jane's latest book, The Big Fella, Babe Ruth, and the World He Created, explores Babe Ruth's life as America's first modern celebrity. The Big Fella has been awarded the Seymour Medal, presented annually by the Society for American Baseball Research, for the best baseball book of the year. The book has also been nominated for the National Book Critics Award in Biography, as well as the Penn Faulkner Award for Literary Sports Writing. The Big Fella includes details never previously reported about the baseball legend's life. In particular, the book sheds light on Babe Ruth's relationship with his agent Christy Walsh. Walsh helped create some of the myths surrounding Babe Ruth in the public consciousness. Jane and I will be talking about all that and more today. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Great to be here. My people. I'm with my people.
0: Well, you're in a room full of baseball fans here. That's what I meant. Uh, Exactly. I I would start, though, with you as a baseball fan. So you're from Roslyn, New York. Now, my guess is that today in Roslyn, New York, baseball fans are largely Met fans, uh, probably originally uh, Brooklyn Dodger fans. uh, But that's not the case.
1: I don't think so. Why would no. you assume that?
0: Well, Long Island, the Mets, Brooklyn originally. Everybody on Long Island in, I know is a, is a Yankee
1: fan, as am I. No, I grew up rooting for the Yankees because my maternal grandmother, Celia Zelda Fellinbaum, lived two blocks, we or one very loud, long foul ball from home plate at Yankee Stadium in a building called the Yankee Arms which was actually constructed in '29, just before the crash, when the neighborhood around Yankee Stadium was being developed, largely thanks to Babe Ruth, and uh, there was a beautiful stained glass window in the in the foyer with uh, crossed bats over a heraldic shield, and this to be near my grandmother was to be near the Yankees. To be near the Yankees was to go to my grandmother's for chocolate layer cake that she made even though she was diabetic and couldn't eat it herself. Take me out to the ball game, sung by Edward Meeker, Edison Records.
0: So it was that where you didn't decide at that point to become a sports writer, but uh, I guess that must have had a big impact on you later on.
1: Well, I was my dad's, uh, you know, uh sports pal my, my sister older sister never liked sports she preferred paper dolls and my mom banished my father and every sports broadcast from the parlor of our home on in roslyn long island so we would ride around long island in on you know football sundays listening to aldi regattas called the new york giants football games my dad had been the water boy for the new york football giants in 1927 a memorable year for other reasons and uh, he was one of those Giants fans, baseball Giants fans, who became a Mets fan. But um, he tolerated my love for the Yankees and occasionally indulged it by taking me to the stadium, even though he hated them.
0: Now, uh, you wrote for the Washington Post, but there wasn't a baseball team here at that time. So what did you do? I guess you went to Baltimore to see baseball.
1: Well, so what happened basically is I went I went to journalism school at Columbia, and i um, it was just when women were starting to get into sports writing and it I you know, I I looked around and I said, This is a good way to get a job. I mean, you know, there were who wants to go to Altoona when you could go to the Washington Post? And I walked in for my interview and uh Ben Bradley said, Levy you spell your name funny And I said, So do you and he said, You're hired. So I was hired as a general assignment sports writer and We had a very schizophrenic relationship with the Baltimore Orioles in the days before baseball came back to D.C. And so we covered games largely just when they were home. And so I was the second baseball writer and got to go to the games that Tom Boswell, the great baseball writer and later columnist, now columnist, didn't want to cover. But we didn't tend to go on the road with them, um, because, after all, they weren't really a home team, so you could argue that you didn't have to send somebody everywhere, unless it was a really big series.
0: And at what point did you decide to move toward writing books about these iconic figures?
1: After I had two kids. And I was, uh, uh, you know, somebody had to stay home, and my ex-husband wasn't about to do it, so... um, I wrote my first novel, Squeeze Play, which is a fictionalized version of my life as a female sports writer with my infant daughter sitting in a little cradle on, on, on my desk, as a matter of fact. And um, I always wanted to go back to the paper, you know, and then newspapers sort of disappeared. Now they're back. Um, but, uh, you know, it's a, I was away 286 days. The last year, I worked full time in the sports department, and you know, you just can't be, you can't be a parent and and do that, not unless you have one that's ready to assume equal responsibility.
0: We'll get to uh, Mantle and Koufax a, a bit later. So let's talk about uh, the big fella and uh, your new book about Babe Ruth. Now, there've been other other books; uh, much has been written about him. You you decided to look into something different, um, beginning with his childhood and then with Christy Walsh. How did you uh, root out uh, those pieces of Babe Ruth that hadn't really been written about or talked about before?
1: I think in a previous life I must have been a rat terrier, you know, because I'm up ferreting around in the muck and the dirt of history all the time. History's being rewritten every day now, thanks to the availability of Vast amounts of digital uh, and archival information that weren't available to the guys who wrote about Babe Ruth before me. I didn't want to write this book for the for the precise reason you mentioned that there were so many that came before, and everybody I needed to interview or would have wanted to speak to is presently dead, as Casey Stengel might have said. So I was I perceived myself as being at a terrible disadvantage, and before. I agreed to do it before I signed the contract with HarperCollins I spent a year reading every previous biography and what was most notable aside from the fact that they were all pretty good was that there was nothing about his childhood and as a reporter you know that if there is a big gap there's usually a real reason for it somebody didn't want to talk about something now partly that was that it was impossible for my predecessors to get a hold of the information that I could find with a click of a mouse. Um, but it was also that Babe Ruth didn't really want anybody to know how Dickensian his childhood was. And so in the absence of uh, him talking about it, today he'd go on, I don't know, well, Barbara Walters is retired and Diane Sawyer's retired, whoever on 60 Minutes. Uh, today he'd go and do some kind of confessional, long form journalistic interview And he'd tell the story, and it would be used by some savvy agent to create sympathy for him. But in 1920s, you didn't want to go and tell people that your parents were divorced, that your mother had been caught by your father in a compromising position on the, quote, dinging room floor. This is from the arrest records I found. uh, And that he... um, uh, his father, having caught his mother with his bartender in a compromising position, threw her out, divorced her, got custody of the kids, and once he had custody of the three surviving children of that, of that union, George Herman Ruth Sr. and Katie Ruth, um, Babe Ruth's fate as a little boy was sealed. He had been sent uh, earlier um, to St. Mary's Industrial School on the western cusp of Baltimore City. It was a place that took um, some orphans, it took some boarding students, it was known primarily as a reform school. And so in the absence of Babe being willing to talk about what happened in his family life, two myths grew up and they were utterly contradictory and you can go out on the street today and people will tell you that both of them are true. One was that he was an orphan And he would occasionally protest. I had parents, but he would never go further. Uh, Or that he was what was called an incorrigible, a kid who had been sent there by the courts for having gotten in trouble with the law. I found the family of the Baltimore City police officer, Harry C. Birmingham, who actually took Babe Ruth, out to St. Mary's because his father couldn't be bothered either to do it or even to visit him in the, during his, the remainder of his time at St. Mary's, and he wasn't released until he was age 19. Um, and Harry C. Birmingham said, "You know, he wasn't a bad kid. You know, he certainly never gave us, meaning the Baltimore Police, any trouble. So it was easier for Babe Ruth, uh, who could trust reporters not to write." anything they might have found, and who knows what they might have known. Uh, It was easier for him to allow um, these two fairly damning um, mythologies to grow up. It was preferable to telling the truth.
0: What impact did that uh, very uh, spare upbringing have on on two things? Um, One, on his profligate lifestyle um, and the other in in terms of his how he related uh, to the people because you have a photograph in the inside cover um, of the book uh, with a large crowd of largely young people around the babe and he looks very much at ease uh, with his uh, boater and uh, his uh, big grin did did that kind of coming from the, the people, as it were, um, uh, help him to relate?
1: Oh, absolutely. You know, at St. Mary's, which was perennially overcrowded, and by the way, I just want to mention, when I always do this in front of audiences, which, which kind of student do you think Babe Ruth was? A boarding student, an incorrigible, an orphan, or a, what was called a wayward boy? He was a boarding student. His father paid for him to go there. So in terms of this being a formative experience, his, his formative experience at age seven is abandonment, is parental abandonment. And it was the defining trip, that trip that the officer of Birmingham took him on from downtown Baltimore to this school way out in what was then basically pasture land. Um, at St. Mary's, the, the, the dorms were always overcrowded. Sometimes you would have 90 boys, uh, a, a dorm for 90 boys, Uh, housing 130 and they slept in these long pinstriped rows of iron cots made with starch sheets and identically you know folded covers and with just enough room between the rows for a, a young boy to get down and say his prayers on his hands and knees. There was nothing personal. There was nothing to distinguish one place from another and who knows whether they even had assigned beds. So these boys slept together, they dressed together, they bathed together, they ate together in silence, because that was the rule, and they played baseball together. So what did he learn? He learned how to be public. He learned to be comfortable in you know, an array of people, whether he was dressed or asleep or snoring or whatever. I guess he wouldn't have snored at that age. Um, and um, that was where he was comfortable. And that's what you're seeing in this picture that you just mentioned. That photograph was taken in August 1925. Yankees played in-season uh, exhibition games, and he was paid extra to play in those exhibition games. And at, at this occasion, 5,000 boys come tumbling out of you know, a, a kind of ramshackle ballpark to try to cram themselves all into one photograph with Babe Ruth. And what you see is that they are draped all over him like like one of his wives fur boas you know they're they're just uh encompassing him and he loves it there's not a single shred of claustrophobia in his in his body language or his smile this is where he is most himself this is where he is happiest this is where he knows exactly who he is. The other part of the question pertaining to St. Mary's was they used baseball since they were overcrowded um, and they had to get some of the hormonal energy out of the, out in the air. they send the kids out to play baseball, and the school basically used baseball as an organizing principle. You know, dorm floors played against each other, the um, industrial shops or the printers would play the— The tailors and the tailors would play the farmers and so they had every kind of league and every kind of team um, usually named uh, the best ones were named for major league teams he played for the Red Sox Um, and so he had ample opportunity to learn to play the game and to be um, educated in playing the game most notably and famously by a brother Matthias um, who was uh, the prefect of discipline and an assistant um, gym teacher and baseball coach. But there were other guys. He wasn't the only one. He's the one in history who gets all the credit. But there were other guys who taught him, uh, Brother Herman, Brother Alvin, who all, all conspired to teach him first how to throw the hell out of a ball, because remember he was first and foremost a fabulous left-handed pitcher, pitcher yep. and then how to hit the hell out of a ball and he spent that's what he spent his childhood doing fine sonny how's yourself all right well i'm glad the yankees won well so am i i guess i've seen a world series change then well i hope so i guess i'm one of the lucky fellows to be able to get into 10 world series and the way i feel now looks like i'll be did in... he
0: no. stay in touch with these people once he became famous
1: He did, and the school actually burned almost completely in 1919, and he organized um, uh, a tour of the St. Mary's uh, marching band, which was actually quite good um, and quite notable um, in the papers and stuff. He took them around to major league cities to to raise money, and he went back, he bought Brother Matthias several Cadillacs uh, after one of them was stalled out on the railroad tracks and was completely destroyed by some afternoon train um, so he would go back but Matthias who was one of the father figures who replaces um, the absent biological dad George Herman Ruth Senior um, also disappears from apparently from his life and from the newspapers after getting huge coverage in 1931 Um and one of the things I found out was he had been dismissed from St. Mary's and sent off to a sort of purgatory in Massachusetts, having had a sexual relationship with a female in, in
0: West Baltimore. In terms of the 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 life of deprivation, um, if we can call it that, as as a youngster, uh, how did it affect his later um, his uh, affection for spending? Well. You may just mention the yeah. four Cadillacs, uh, and, and were, there was a lot. Well, I else. think he was.
1: I think a he was. Uh, he was primarily a generous guy, and a lot of people who grow up with not a lot, you know, they put money in their hands. This is still true of ballplayers today. They just spend it. <laughs> they just go through it. But you know, one of the myths about him is that he was this man of un- unfillable appetites. You know, that as soon as he got out of St. Mary's, he went nuts. Um, you know, drinking and eating and uh, canoodling, to let's be nice, um, you know, to an extreme. But I think, actually, you know, what needs to be remembered is that when he was released from St. Mary's, and in, a, in a year that defies understanding, he's released in March 1914, signed by the then Minor League Orioles, plays for them, is traded is sold to the Red Sox, uh, pitches makes his major league debut, meets a young waitress, 16 years old, at a coffee shop that he that he goes to, and he marries her. You know he, he goes he gets sent down to Providence to and he he helps the uh, Providence Grays win a championship. He comes back to Boston, and then he gets married. So his first instinct was not that of this quote-unquote wild man but it was that of a boy who had no family who tried to give himself one that the marriage didn't last that he didn't know how to be a husband or a father is hardly surprising he had no way of knowing how to be either and i would warrant that there are a whole lot of other professional athletes about whom you can say the same thing but that was his first instinct and i find that incredibly both poignant and touching
0: so he plays uh, six seasons for the Red Sox, um, and then in this uh, historic deal, uh, winds up with the Yankees. Um, at, at, at what point does Christy Walsh, the, the agent, uh, enter the picture?
1: So Christy Walsh shows up in February 1921. He is a California guy, a failed Publicist, a failed ad guy, a failed sports cartoonist. He's just been fired from his latest job at a New York advertising agency that specialized in automotive clients because he had started out doing that kind of thing out on the coast. And after he's fired, he has an idea which is not that radical, but, you know, everybody wanted a piece of the babe. But his idea was that if he could create a newspaper syndicate to sell... Ghost-written, copy, ghostwritten columns by Babe Ruth and you know and his ilk. Um, he would be able to fill a void which existed because remember, there was no radio yet. There was nobody interviewing these guys for newspapers. Pe- newspapers didn't quote people. they w- they went and wrote a story a game story and described the action in highfalutin terms and you know purple prose as my, hero and mentor, Red Smith, would have said. Um, And they knew these guys really well. They went to dinner at Babe Ruth's house, but they didn't actually really quote them. (laughs) They They never talked to them. Nobody thought athletes had anything to say, and besides, you had to make your deadline. And there was no radio. So Christy Walsh happened on this idea of filling this void. Fans wanted to know what Babe Ruth thought, what he had to say, They may have really known that he didn't really write this copy. Um, He sometimes would send back a, you know, a a telegram from Chicago, hit another today, you know, that was, you were supposed to write something based on that. Um, So it was a brilliant idea, and it worked really, really well until radio eclipsed uh, that format, Uh, you know, so by the mid-30s it was a dead, dead idea. But um, Christy Walsh was, uh, had a lot of moxie, and he it, it had a lot of desperation, too. So according to his, his nephew, Richard, um, what he did was, after being blown off by the Babe, uh, he climbed up the fire escape at the hotel where he was staying. I presume it was the Ansonia uh, where he had an apartment. Um, saw that the window to Babe's room was open to crack, let himself in, found the babe in bed with a luscious blonde slapped him on the butt and said i want to represent you and this is the kind of moxie that would have appe- appealed to babe ruth also the fact that he offered him 500 dollars a column as opposed to the 50 he'd been getting from everybody else so once babe signed with him it was only a matter of time before he basically cornered the market in um you know athletic. Personalities. So he had Newt Rockney, and he had Pop Warner and Lou Gehrig and uh, John McGraw and Walter, you know, Big Train Johnson. And he made Ruth a pretty penny doing that. And he made himself some shekels, too.
0: The impression I get in reading about uh, Walsh is that um, as much as he could be compared to the, the mega agents today... Uh, Maybe a better uh, comparison would be to Colonel Tom Parker, um, who was uh, uh, the one who built Elvis Presley's career. In other words, it's kind of uh, um, anything and everywhere, uh, selling the name, selling the image. Would you say that 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 would be a a fair comparison?
1: Christy Walsh was the original Jerry Maguire. He understood that something new was going on in America, that the advent of mass media and the creation of of pop culture and a new kind of celebrity that was augmented by every new form of technology. It was a revolutionary a moment in technology as the beginning of personal computing was. So suddenly you had um, things that could send pictures overnight from New York to Los Angeles. You had telexes that could send back more than the 10 words that reporters used to be able to send back from distant cities. You And you began to have radio. In 1921, uh, just after he hooked up with Babe Ruth, there's a picture in the book of Babe Ruth cradling a pigeon at the polo grounds. This is, the Yankees were still there. The house that Ruth built wouldn't be built for another two years. And the reason he's holding this pigeon is because the residents of upper Manhattan on the east side it was a big series between the Yankees and the Indians, and it was going to determine the pennant, and they wanted updates. There was no way to get updates except to wait for the afternoon paper to be dumped on the, at the candy at the corner down the street. So they had the pigeon flying back and forth. Now, to put that in perspective, six years later, 1927, opens at Yankee Stadium with Babe Ruth being interviewed live, what may have been the first pre-game interview, uh, certainly for him, uh, by Graham McNamee in a field box draped with, you know, bunting, um, patriotic bunting. And that year, the World Series is broadcast live coast to coast for the first time on not one but two new major radio networks, CBS and NBC. So the world is turning inside out. And Walsh is savvy enough to figure out how to use all those new things and all the new ideas of, of publicity and marketing that were being invented on Madison Avenue, you know, while this is all going on, for product placement and um, synergy, though they wouldn't have used those words then. Uh, so, for example, yeah, they go on a barnstorming tour, 1927, at the end of the season, and uh Walsh makes sure that Babe Ruth poses in Omaha with the national egg-laying champion of the world. Now, this is very good for the Nebraska Egglayers Association and the National Egg Layers Association, and it's also great for Ruth because it shows him to be... This incredibly good-natured guy reminds everybody of the of the notion that Walsh had created that he was really a gentleman farmer, which he wasn't. And um, so, you know, it's a perfect moment of what today we would call, you know, PR synergy.
0: Well, Walsh was um, uh, to use, I guess, the entertainment comparison. He was he was a, an agent and a manager. Um, tell us a little about that particular point where he decides that um, the babe is is uh, just spending too much uh, and he decides to start managing uh, babe's money
1: well that would be too um active a way to describe what happened it's a more passive process than that babe ruth did spend himself into um near bankruptcy which was um, augmented by the fact that by 1925 his early marriage to Helen Woodford had deteriorated to such a point that they negotiated a separation agreement that it called for Babe to pay her a hundred grand over a four-year period. And when the payments were due, he didn't have the money enough money to pay that and to pay his taxes. and he, he ended up in Hawk. So he goes to walsh in the spring of 1926 and borrows four thousand dollars asked to borrow four thousand and walsh again being not stupid says sure i'll lend you the money as long as you sign an agreement and i found the letter and it's you're know, quoted in the book as long as you sign an agreement saying that i from now on have to be consulted before you make any purchases um, including land and that i get to um decide and and you know give you permission for every dollar <laughs> you spend and having uh and having acquired that he then negotiated contracts with babe where it was put in writing that he man that he created a new company in addition to the christy walsh newspaper syndicate a christy walsh management company and uh proceeded to do for babe ruth what agents today do for ball players now the only thing christy walsh could not do for him was to actually negotiate salary this was you know a, a given in baseball that these poor you know uneducated schlubs who could hit the hell out of a ball were supposed to be able to go in on their own and get a fair deal from you know the owners who were educated, in the case of Jake Rupert, incredibly savvy businessman, and somehow (laughs) that it was a fair fight. And of course, it wasn't a fair fight. And Walsh tried to tutor um, Babe and how to to apply leverage in the negotiations for his contract. They actually did role playing on a train ride back to New York uh, in February um, 1927 when Babe has to go in to negotiate his new contract. And, of course, the players had no rights. You know, there was, This was long before free agency, long before um, anybody had the right to say, I don't want to play for the Yankees anymore. I can go play for somebody else. There was that reserve clause that everybody talks about, which meant that your last year's contract renewed in perpetuity. The terms didn't, but the ownership of you as chattel belonging to the Yankees or whoever renewed in perpetuity. So there was only so much they could do. The only thing athletes really could do at that point was hold out, which, of course, he famously did. So
0: you mentioned 1927. After the World Series in 1927, uh, there's a a major barnstorming tour, and much of uh, your book... um, Uh, follows that tour city to city. Um, It's hard to imagine today after the World Series. I know everybody goes home uh, until spring training, Um, but at that time this was uh, an opportunity for uh, players to be seen in places where they normally wouldn't go. So tell us a little about that tour.
1: Well, you you know, when you asked at first about taking on this project, I knew from the get-go that I had to find uh, a new story to tell about him which I was able to do in in the archives of the Maryland archives where I found all the family documents and also in newspaper archives where I could get the stories from little papers from everywhere they went Um, so I I knew I needed a new story to tell and a new way to tell it and so I decided to recreate this three-week barnstorming tour that Walsh organized for Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig uh, who was just 24 years old at that point and who had just won the uh, MVP award uh, despite Babe's 60 home runs he did not win the MVP award because you weren't allowed to get it twice and he had won it in 1923 so what Walsh and Ruth understood that it would take Major League Baseball owners and executives another 30 years to understand is that they were doing something to increase the market share of Major League Baseball by taking themselves to cities where you never could see. There was no television, you know, you no daily radio coverage. You This is the only way if you lived in Omaha, where my minor, favorite chicken minor, resided, um, it was the only way you get to see them.
0: They have minor league baseball in those places, many places, but not Major League Baseball.
1: Right, and, and again, minor league baseball was a big deal then, and it was very good. Um, but this was the only way you could see what the big guys, the big, the, what the show was like. And so, you know, they would go. It was, it was kind of like a traveling circus. It was very carny. They went from town to town. Sometimes they had this 89-year-old um, pedestrian, which was a race walker, who would race around the bases as as pregame entertainment. Um, they did everything they could to make it a show. They had a pre-game hitting exhibition. By the time they got to uh, Marysville and Stockton, California, um, two and a half weeks into the tour, Babes had been wrenched his back, and his hands were so sore from hitting. You know, batting gloves? I don't think so. <laughs> they Didn't have any of those. Um, they were blistered and bleeding, and you know, it was it, it was hard work. And they didn't exa- And they went from town to town to town on on trains. Um, and, you know, Babe said, oh, I never could sleep in a train, you know. So they, every once in a while, they'd stop and go to a hotel overnight, and they'd get a good night's sleep. But this was a way for me to show how Babe re- related to people outside New York. And to you. I wanted people to be able to experience what it was like to be him and to be with him. And the local newspaper reporters, for whom this was a once-in-a-lifetime story— um, actually wrote what he said, unlike the New York writers who were jaded and who uh, abided by a kind of clubhouse omerta, you know, uh, the local reporters went to town so I could find dialogue in those local stories, again, thanks to the, you know, digitization of newspapers um, that, you know, you couldn't find anywhere else.
0: Babe was very open-minded in terms of race relations. Um, playing against uh, African Americans or African American teams, um, was that was that questioned by uh, by, by his uh, fellow players, uh, teammates? Um, it, it made a pretty big statement at a time when it seemed that very few uh, were willing to do that.
1: Well, he wasn't the only white major leaguer to barnstorm and play uh, exhibition games against negro leaguers but of course he was Babe Ruth so he guaranteed them a big payday and of course it would attract more attention. Now I'm I'm sure you know that that one of the again the myths and rumors that followed him throughout his life was that he might have um, some black racial makeup and it that's started on the, on the playing fields of St. Mary's where boys, because of his complexion and the width of his nose and the fullness of his lips, gave him a perfectly awful uh, – nick. they would have considered it a nickname. They called another kid Congo, so you could see where, where the tastes were on the playing fields of, of uh, St. Mary's in the you know, 1906 through 1919. But those rumors followed him into the major leagues. And they were articulated in the Red Sox uh, clubhouse, and they were hurled at him from dugouts um, across the major leagues, uh, including uh, famously in in Chicago during the game that's famous for the called shot. Um, But on this barnstorming tour, he did this amazing thing. They They go to Kansas City, and he sees endless numbers of kids at different hospitals and orphanages, And somebody somehow gets a hold of him and says, but don't you have time for us? And they were uh, representatives from Wheatley Provident, which was the hospital for, in the, the, you know, archaic vernacular, uh, for Negro children and colored children. And so instead of having lunch, he goes over there to meet with them. And there's a picture taken by the photo editor of the Kansas City uh, Post, George Cawthon, of him cradling. This obviously ill infant, and against his massive chest, and just like the picture uh, that we talked about of him in uh, Syracuse with all those boys, he flashes the biggest smile. So talk about a uh, you know an image, a picture that's worth a gazillion words, because that spoke to the African American community, you know, who considered him. Uh, what was called a friend of the race and um and he had to have known that it would kick up those ugly rumors that persisted uh throughout major league baseball so it was quite an extraordinary thing i'd take
0: it even further in terms of his of his uh, open-mindedness he uh, signed uh, an an advertisement uh, that was written by dorothy thompson the, the journalist uh, that appeared in newspapers in 1942, December of 1942, uh, specifically together with 50 uh, German Americans, yep. not Jewish, uh, condemning Hitler and uh, the extermination of of the Jews, and that was early on 1942, uh, and that's one one point that I think um, is is important. And then later on, 1948, which you mentioned in your book. Um, a, um, uh, a baseball game, uh, which was an, like an exhibition, I gather. Um, it, was a, it
1: was a game, a championship that was being played with St. Mary's and some other and kids. And honoring
0: uh, one of the children, I think, from St. Mary's, which was sponsored by mm-hmm. the Knights of Columbus and B'nai B'rith. Um, so uh, that I, I think lending his name uh, to that kind of activity, particularly the ad in 1942, uh, I think says a lot about his... his uh, his worldview.
1: As a journalist, I I feel it's incumbent of me to mention that you never know, you know, you can't know how much of these things, you know, some of these things were his idea and somebody else's. But I think he he gets the credit for it nonetheless. Um, You know, and he he had a Jewish lawyer, my God, you know, he was smart enough to do that. Um, And the the game you're talking about took place on July 13th 1948 which is just a month before his death and he gets up out of his hospital bed and he flies now again there's a there's an idea of how much the world changed from his rookie year with the Boston Red Sox when there's no radio and fame is just as as big as the circulation of the local newspaper and now here he is he's flying off um, to Baltimore to he's supposed to give a prize to the you know best kid Uh, best player. And it's a rainy, horrible day, and the game has to be called. But uh, head of B'nai B'rith Lodge says to his son, Sig, you know, hey, I'm going to pick up Babe Ruth at the airport. You want to come? Are you kidding me? (laughs) You want to come? Sure. And Sig and a bunch of other kids are there to greet him and a photographer is smart enough you know to say hey why don't you boys go on up the stairs to greet him but I I talked to Sig and he you know remembered just how frail he looked and how gnarly and bony his hands were and um, the game was called off but he stayed for the banquet and he went home and climbed back into bed and he never left New York City again.
0: Really, we have in the remaining time, um, I, I really uh, am compelled by virtue of my own uh, fandom here uh, to ask you about uh, your two books, one on Mantle and one on Koufax. Now, Koufax, for uh, people of my generation, uh, that uh, uh, staying home, staying out of, uh, out of the series, World Series on Yom Kippur was extremely important, as was for a, a bit earlier, somewhat earlier. Uh, the Hank Greenberg question uh, in terms of his staying out on on Rosh Hashanah. Um, Koufax is not a particularly observant uh, uh, Jew, but it was very important to him, obviously, uh, for uh, a lot of good reasons. How do you read that? Well, uh, stepping
1: back for a second, you know, I perceive these three books as an inadvertent trilogy. Sandy's a book about a guy who issued fame um, because he knows how easily you can eat your soul. Mickey Mantle is the guy who was destroyed by f- his fame. And Babe Ruth's the guy who invented fame, modern celebrity as we know it. Koufax is about as smart and as well-read a human being as I've ever met in my life. He stayed in his room in, in St. Paul or Minneapolis where the Yankees were playing the Minnesota Twins in the first game of the World Series in 1965. He had never played on any of the high holidays. There were, you know, moments where it was close because, you know, it was sundown and then he pitched um, or things like that. But he had never done it. He had just never caught everybody's attention because it had never coincided with the first game of the World Series. And, in fact, right after he pitched his perfect game, um, on September 9th of that year, um, he said to the reporters, well, we better we better hope for rain on the, on, on the opening day of the World Series because he knew what the schedule was like. Um, Sandy has done something that I, I, I can't admire, you know, anything more. He has allowed his actions primarily to speak for himself. He has never advertised, his Judaism, he's never gone on television, talked about it, he's never done ads for anybody. You know, he understands and acts as if, you know, what we're raised to believe is true, that there's freedom of religion, and freedom of religion means how to practice or not practice it without being questioned about it. And so here's a guy who is proud of his Jewish heritage. He's raised in Brooklyn. Um, predominantly in the years after his biological father left the family by his socialist grandfather, Max, and um, who takes him to Yiddish theater. He's a very, as his friend Fred Wilpon, owner of the Met, said, he's a very Jewish being, but he is not an observant Jew. And so in a way, it was even more of a sacrifice. If he wasn't Sandy Koufax and not it wasn't a question of him being the starter of game one of the World Series, you know, he wouldn't have cared whether he played, you know, except for he did it for his parents, he did it for the community, he knew he was being watched. I mean, he's as graceful off the field as he is on it.
0: Well, I can tell you for for one 16-year-old then in high school in New Hampshire, and we didn't have a lot of Jews in our community, Um, it it really struck a blow for for Jewish pride and Jewish identity. Just uh, frankly, uh, uh, two years later, uh, the Six-Day War uh, did the same thing in terms of pride about about Israel and Israel's place place in the world.
1: Well, I agree with you, and I, I think that it took him a long time to come to grips with, because he's as modest a human being as he is, to come to grips with how much it meant to other people. And one of the Dodger photographers stopped him and, you know, said, do you you get this? Do you see? I mean, this is after some lady is, an old Jewish lady in Florida is shaking his right hand vociferously. You have no idea what it meant. You have no idea what it meant. And the photographer says to her, lady, you ought to shake his left hand. He did more with that. (laughs) But at at that occasion, you know, the photographer says, do you get it? You know, do you know how much it meant to other people? And he said, yes.
0: So one question on Mantle, and uh, he was my, my childhood idol. I am a, um, a Yankee fan. Uh, even though I played on the Little League Dodgers, I still wore number seven uh, very proudly. Me too. In your, in your book, uh, you, you honestly portrayed him and his flaws. Uh, but now looking at what you've done with uh, Babe Ruth, uh, how did the culture of celebrity affect Mantle?
1: Well, I think it destroyed him. I mean, here's this hit kid from Commerce, Oklahoma, which is now largely a Superfund site due to the zinc and lead mining industry that, you know, eviscerated the town of of Commerce and Joplin um, where his father worked and where his father, a miner, you know, contracted the disease that would kill him and which Mickey chose to believe would kill him too. Um, But, you know, he comes to New York and... He's 19, and everybody wants to buy the mick a drink. And that would continue all the way through his baseball career and all the way through, you know, the decades afterwards. When I interviewed him in 1983 for The Washington Post, he said to me, well, I got doctors say I got cirrhosis of the liver, but it ain't going to bother me done. When I went back to look at my old notes to write the book, I went, oh, my God. He knew in 1983, and he kept drinking for another decade and change, and when he finally got sober, which was an incredible accomplishment in 94, uh, he only had 18 months of sobriety before he died, but you remember Sudden Sam McDowell, the fastball pitcher? Well, Sudden Sam, who does a lot of educating and has created a place where major leaguers can go who need uh, a way to learn to grow up and shelter and uh, many of the ki- many of the guys who go there are alcoholics and whatnot, you know, and I said to Sam, God, it's such a tragedy, Mickey only had 15 months or 14 months of sobriety before he died, because he died of um, alcoholic cirrhosis of the liver, and um, Sam yelled at me, he said, you ought to know better than that, you ought to know better than that, for him to have gotten sober at all was an incredible ac- accomplishment. And so few alcoholics and drug addicts, the percentage of those who do, is, is minuscule. So I think, um, you know, every time somebody said, hey, I'm going to buy the make a drink and then laughed when he made a fool of himself, you know, we were all contributing to um, an illness that was certainly not understood and not treated when he came to the Yankees in the 1950s. I mean, if he came up today, somebody would have put him in rehab you know, somebody would have taken him aside. Somebody would have understood that it's an inherited, can be an inherited disease, and that the alcoholics in his family, and there were many of them, you know, suggested that perhaps he needed to exercise some caution. Um, But there was nobody and nothing to do that for him.
0: There's that great, that great statement at the end where he says, uh, Paraphrasing. Uh, don't look at me. I'm I'm no role model. Right. Um, it, it's so it's, it's so touching whenever I, I see that clip. Knowing what we know and knowing what you told us in in that book, Jane. We could go on for hours. Honestly, um, we uh, I, I mean that. Uh, there's so much to, more to talk about. Um, but well, we wish you luck. The book is the Big Fella, Babe Ruth and the World He Created, and uh, other books about Sandy Koufax and Mickey Mantle and. We're just delighted to have you here and wish you the best going forward with this book and others to come. Thank you so very much. Thanks, everybody, for listening to our podcast. Please visit our website, benabrit.org, Like our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter. Subscribe on your smartphone through the podcast app for iPhone or through Google Play for Android. And lastly, tell a friend about it. For my guest, Jane Levy, I'm Dan Mary Ashen. We'll talk to you next time on the B'nai B'rith International Podcast.